0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Built Press Pod. These are scary times, as we know. It's a scene we've never thought we'd see in our lifetime. For the first time in over six decades a ground war in europe and worse yet an unprovoked war a war of choice by vladimir putin sending russian troops into neighboring ukraine it's a war that has united not just the united states and the rest of europe but almost the entire world against russia and for us it does raise a lot of interesting questions including What is Putin's ultimate goal? Can Ukraine possibly defeat Russia's much larger army? How far is America willing to go to defend Ukraine? And is there a risk that Putin might use nuclear weapons? One week into the invasion, we look at every aspect of the Ukraine war today with two men who know the country and the issues involved very, very well. Joe Cirincione, former president of the Plowshares Fund, and Stephen Pfeiffer, who is America's ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 to 2000 under President Bill Clinton. Ambassador Piper and Joe Cerencioni, welcome both of you to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having us. Well, I want to start, Ambassador, with you. A, a question that I think a lot of Americans are asking themselves these days, why, why is it so important? to defend Ukraine. What's at stake here? Yeah, no, that's an
0: understandable question. Ukraine is 5,000 miles away, but I'll give you a couple of reasons. One, um, Ukraine, if you have a stable and secure Ukraine, that contributes to a stable and secure Europe. That's a U.S. goal going back to 1945. Uh, Second, Ukraine has done some things that were very much in the U.S. interest, including in the 1990s, they gave up the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, including almost 2000 nuclear warheads strategic nuclear warheads that were for intercontinental ballistic missiles and heavy bombers designed to strike the United States. And the third reason is relates to that second reason which is in 1994 we told the Ukrainians we would care. Mm-hmm. Part of the arrangement by which Ukraine agreed to give up that strategic nuclear arsenal was the Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances in which the United States, Russia and Britain committed to respect Ukraine's independence, its territorial integrity, And committed not to use force or threaten to use force against Ukraine. And Russia has totally shredded those commitments. But in the negotiation of that document and its antecedent, the trilateral statement, we told the Ukrainians look, it's a memorandum on security assurances, not guarantees, because if there's a violation, we're not guaranteed, we're not telling you the 82nd Airborne is coming. But we will take an interest. We will take an interest. And I think uh, it's important for the United States to uh, live up to its word. And finally, you know, just think about this. This is 21st century Europe. A city of three million is now under siege by the Russian army in what is clearly an unprovoked war of choice by Mr. Putin. And the world has to indicate that this kind of behavior is unacceptable. Uh, Otherwise, we may have to face worse consequences down the road.
1: So, Joe, it sounds like the ambassador is saying there's a lot more at stake here than just the territory of Ukraine.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. It's it's. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a, you know, a clash of civilizations or the kind of high rhetoric that some in Washington want to get into. But you can see just by the reaction of the European capitals um, how important this is. I think it's been stunning over the last five days to see how uh, dramatically. The countries have reacted to this. How deeply they feel two things: one, this is a direct threat to them. This is a direct to the a direct threat to the uh, European security arrangements that have been in place since the end of of World War II, uh, and that this is a very emotional issue for them. Whether you see it in the way Ukrainian soccer players are greeted as they compete in the European. Um, uh, football League, where they're greeted with standing ovations, or you, you see it in the massive demonstrations that are breaking out in, in support of Ukraine in, in European cities, or you see it in the s- stunning w- response of governments to increase uh, weapons shipments to Ukraine, increase their own defense budgets, but most importantly, move incredibly rapidly to inc- To increase um, uh, sanctions on Russia, uh, things that we thought were going to take weeks have been happening in days, and you realize the immense power that Europe and the United States have to cripple a country as as large as Russia, not by military means but by economic means. All of this is developing. So rapidly that, that we, we, we don't have time yet to, to understand the profound changes in the global security structure that this war is unleashing
0: yeah, can I, can I, let me just uh, agree completely with everything that Joe just said, and take the case of Germany in the last five or six days, you have seen come undone five decades of German policy towards Russia, this special relation with Russia, and in the last five days, the Germans have basically said they're going to kill the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. Uh, They've agreed to use swift sanctions on Russian banks. They have changed their policy and are now sending weapons to a conflict zone, Stinger missiles and anti tank missiles. And yesterday, they said, we will raise our NATO budget, our defense budget, this year to meet the NATO standard of 2%, Mm -hmm. and we're going to add 100 billion euros. That's the equivalent of two years of defense spending right now to beef up their defenses. That is dramatically different. And I think it's probably shocked those in the Kremlin.
1: I saw today uh, another example that Switzerland uh, has abandoned its neutral stance here mm-hmm. uh, and said they're going to jump in with extra sanctions uh, against Russia as well. Joe? Yeah, how do you- I
2: don't think Putin calculated this. You know, you heard uh, last week that Putin has calculated the cost of sanctions and he's proceeding. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't think he calculated this. I mean, you know, when you think of what Putin cares about, his bank accounts in Zurich are at the top of the list, and, <laughs> and, and you're, you're seeing Europeans and Russians freeze those assets. Just yesterday, we took the unprecedented step of, of cutting off the Russian central bank from SWIFT, the, 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 the mm-hmm. international messaging transfer mechanism that allows banks to move money from place to place, that means that the $630 billion that Putin apparently has amassed over the years, precisely to withstand sanctions, it, it may now be beyond his reach. This is going to cost tremendous pain. To uh, the the people of Russia and to the business leaders in Russia, including the oligarchs, Th- this Putin is facing a threat unlike anything he has experienced in his years of rule. So, Steve, did
1: Putin miscalculate the response uh, or the resistance of the Ukrainian people as well?
0: Uh, I think um, he has made a serious miscalculation. Joe's exactly right. That he miscalculated the European and the Western response, but I think he also miscalculated Ukraine. And I actually really question whether he understands Ukraine and Ukrainians that well. The last time he was in uh, Kyiv was 2013, and he gave this speech with a theme that he's repeated since, that we Russians and Ukrainians are one people. And that's an utterly tone-deaf thing to say in Ukraine, because a significant portion of the population What they hear is, you've just denied my history, my culture, my language. So I'm not sure Putin really does understand. And the military operation that we've seen, I mean, it's been given the massive force that Russia has assembled in occupied Crimea, in Russia proper, in Belarus, uh, you know, there really has not been much of an air campaign. Uh, They have sent in some forces, but by uh, most accounts, they are still holding a significant portion of their forces yet to cross the border. And it's almost as if they thought that this relatively small attack would succeed, that they expected minimal resistance. Mm. And as Mm -hmm. they're finding out, the Ukrainians are going to resist very, very fiercely.
2: Yeah. And let me just point out two things about that. I I think Putin thought this was going to be like Georgia. Five Mm -hmm. days into the Georgia war, he had conquered his his objectives, right? Uh, Same with the 2014 Crimea uh, incursion into Crimea. Well, th- this is not going at all well for him, and he and he's l- clearly the, the vaunted Russian military machine has been overrated. They have serious problems now. We shouldn't take too much solace in this, because if this is stymied, you can bet that Putin is pounding the table, demanding more, demanding faster. I wouldn't be surprised at all to start seeing the kind of bombardments that the Russian army perfected in their Syria campaign, where they devastated towns and Syrian cities with massive indiscriminate bombing. I'm afraid this is going to get a lot worse
1: um, before it gets resolved. Wow. Um, were Was anything accomplished, do we know yet, anything accomplished at all at the talks uh, at the Belarus border on uh, Monday between um, representatives of the Russian government and the Ukraine government?
2: I haven't heard, Steve.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the reports I've seen are fragmentary. I mean, it sounds like that they agreed on the possibility of meeting again, uh, but it doesn't sound like there was any kind of a breakthrough. And and again, given the, at least what I think is the maximalist demands or the maximalist position of the Russians or of the Putin, which is the, what he talks about, the demilitarization of Ukraine and the denazification of Ukraine. Uh, and, that, I mean, that remains, I guess, uh, the uh, removal of a Jewish president
2: uh, mm-hmm.
0: from uh, from Kyiv. Yeah. Uh, and I just don't see how the Ukrainians are going to be prepared to accept that. And I think President Zelensky, who is striking quite a figure as a wartime president, he also understands that uh, there's a lot of public anger, hostility, rage against the Russian military now. And that may limit him. He can't, you know, start trading away things because I don't think Mm -hmm. the population is going to be with him on this. So uh, there may be another meeting, and I think that negotiating channel, it's good to keep it open. But unless or until the Russians lower their objectives, I just don't see much room for
1: compromise
0: between Moscow and Kyiv.
1: But you raise the ultimate question, the the question, which is, uh, and Joe, speak to this and then Ambassador, jump in. What? Is Do we know what is Putin's ultimate goal here? Is it to recreate the old Soviet Union? Is it to occupy um, Georgia and Ukraine, Joe?
2: I'll give you my answer, but Steve knows better than I. Yes, it's to recreate the the Russian Empire. It's very clear.
1: It's not realistic
2: at all. I, no, I didn't say it was realistic. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but just okay. because something is stupid doesn't mean a country won't do it. You know, yeah. th- th- we learned that in 2003. You know, He, he believes that he um, is, is a power center that is the equal or should be the equal of the United States. And to, ha- to have that power, he needs to have an array of countries either aligned with him or neutral. Between him and the um, what he would see as the U.S.-dominated West, and and he he was, and this is why the expansion of NATO in the late 1990s caused him such distress and others in Russia because they saw the U.S seizing the advantage and bringing military forces right up to his border into those states that he thought were going to be neutral or maybe aligned with Russia. And he says, this has got to stop. This has got to Mm -hmm. go. Now, his diplomacy to get that to stop failed. And now he's resorting to, to military force. Uh, and the idea would be to get Kazakhstan, Belarus, Ukraine back in the fold. But it's very clear from his speech before before that he's also looking at the Baltic states, all the former Soviet republics. What do you think, Steve?
0: Yeah, I actually, Joe, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit on here. Uh, first of all, uh, on the question of NATO enlargement, I actually think that NATO took pains to make NATO enlargement as non-threatening as possible to Russia. And in fact, up until 2014, NATO had no ground forces in the Baltic states or Poland or Romania. Uh, uh, Those deployments only began after the Russian seizure of Crimea and the conflict in Donbass. On on recreating the Soviet Union, I'm not sure that Putin wants to recreate the Soviet Union, and that, that would require that Russia then have to subsidize most of the other members. But he certainly wants a sphere of influence. He certainly wants those countries in the post-Soviet space. And I think the Baltics may be beyond the line, but we'll have to see about that. That bears close watching. But for the rest, he wants them to have governments that are open to Russian business, but also are going to be prepared to give Moscow a veto over the kinds of relations that they have with the West. So I I think with regard to what he wants to do in Ukraine, I mean, he does want to depose the current government. He does appear to then want to put in a Russia-friendly government. His problem is that no Russian-friendly government that the Russians install in Kiev lasts for two minutes beyond the departure of the Russian military and Russian security services. So if he's really bent on having a pro-Russian government in Kiev, he's got to be prepared to commit a significant portion of his military and his security services to basically being an occupation army with a hostile, angry, unruly population, many of whom are armed.
1: Does he have enough people to do that?
0: Uh, Most people would say if you look at the numbers that you need to population, if you're talking about Ukraine, a country of 43 million, I mean, even if you just do the east and the center, you're still talking about 30 to 35 million people. You need an awful large force to do that. And I'm not sure he can do that without really stretching the Russian military resources very, very thin or, you know, exercising some campaign of huge brutality simply to try to suppress the resistance. But I'm not sure that even that would work with the Ukrainians. They're pretty. I uh, remember uh, in Western Ukraine, partisans continued to fight the Soviets after World War Two until
1: 1953. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, so Joe, I don't want to get into psycho babble here, but it sounds like he's got this enormous insecurity complex, uh, Putin, or feeling that he's uh, threatened by the West. Or was there any actual threat? I mean, Steve used the phrase, un- the term, unprovoked war. Was there any real threat to Russia that Putin's responding to? Oh, n- nothing that justifies
2: what he's doing. Th- there are some issues. But I would say these are issues that could have been resolved diplomatically. I mean, there were reasons for him to be concerned. Uh, Steve may differ on this, but you know, the US put in missile interceptors into Poland and uh, Romania. We said we needed those to intercept any nuclear-armed uh, Iranian uh, missiles that might fly. Now, the problem is that there are no nuclear-armed Iranian missiles that could fly. So the Russians are going, well, what are those for? And they the, the particular tubes they put in can fire interceptors, but they come off our Aegis cruisers, and they can also fire nuclear-tipped cruise missiles. And the Russians are saying, well, how, how are we supposed to know what's in there? Now, there are solutions to that, but there are some legitimate concerns that they have, but nothing that rises to the level of an actual threat against uh, Russia, an actual threat against to Putin.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree
0: that there were some legitimate Russian security concerns. but it seems to me that the United States and NATO, when they rejected the key demand, which was that NATO pledged never to enlarge again, but they also said they laid out here are a series of arms control measures, risk reduction, confidence in security building measures. Uh, Joe mentioned the uh, the air, the missile interceptors, and I actually agree that I could see the Russians see that as a bit problematic. But the United States said, we are prepared to come and let you take a look at those things and satisfy yourselves if there are missile interceptors, not cruise missiles, if we can go look at a couple of your bases that you know cause concern to us. So there were a lot of measures that are on the table that could have contributed in a genuine way to European security, but the Russians ignored them. Mm. And and part of this does, I think, get to Vladimir Putin. Uh, I think we're dealing with a Putin who's a bit or maybe a lot different from the Putin of 10 or 15 years ago, who was at the time, you know, he used to be, I think, fairly calculating in costs and benefits. Uh, but what we see now, particularly with regards to Ukraine, is somebody who I think is more emotional, uh, and and therefore that may be clouding the rational calculations that he might otherwise make. Uh, I really do wonder about the impact of somebody now. And now, to begin with, Putin, I think, operated in a very fairly, fairly closed environment, uh, a very small inner circle. Uh, but I think that that. Uh, inner circle has become even smaller over the past two years, because he appears to be paranoid about uh, COVID. So he really has been very isolated for the last two years. And, and you see it, you know, even yesterday when he met with his minister of defense and, oh. and the chief of the uh, general staff. he's oh, at that, a was, table that was so weird. Yeah.
2: Years. Yeah.
0: And, but that's become his pattern. It's weird. Uh, and I think another impact that we're seeing is he's he used to be very calculated in the risks that he took, you know. As Joe mentioned, you know, the conflict against Georgia, he was in and out in five days. They destroyed a good part of the Georgian army, then they left, and that was probably the a risk way, to, risk or a minimal risk way to conduct that operation. You know, he's taking a huge risk now in Ukraine, both in terms of he's tackling the largest country entirely inside Europe in, in land space, forty million people. Uh, and a campaign that may not have much support and may have significant opposition from his domestic base at home.
1: So before we take a break, I want to ask both of you, Joe, start with you. Uh, what about the sanctions that have been uh, put in place by the United States and our European allies? Um, are they tough enough, and how long will they take to kick in? These are unprecedented. We have never
2: seen sanctions like this um, what comes close is the sanctions we put against North Korea and Iran. But now we're dealing with Russia, a much larger country, deeply entwined with the West. They're doing this at significant cost to themselves. This is really going to hurt the Europeans and I might say hurt us, but they have the power to cripple Putin, to to, to mm. really cause the collapse of Russia if we keep going. And I got to give credit to the Biden administration. I think they're doing this exactly right, slowly, methodically, preserving our greatest asset, which is the unity of the Western alliance, so that everybody is going step by step. And in the last couple of days, we've seen Europe move more quickly, advance more quickly than any of us thought, in part because of the emotional appeal by um by President Zelensky to the European Union that seems to have moved Germany in particular and France to move to take steps like the sanctioning of the Russian Central Bank.
0: Yeah, I no, I agree with Joe. These are really unprecedented sanctions. They are going to have massive impacts on the Russian economy. And a lot. the Russian public is now going to begin to share in some of the pain. Um, whether they coerce Putin at the end of the day to abandon his course, I'm less sure. Uh, and again, I, I think when he made his decision to go to war, again, I think it was an unprovoked uh, war of choice against Ukraine. Uh, he probably factored in the impact of sanctions. Now, I, I suspect he also miscalculated in that he underestimated those sanctions. But I'm not sure those sanctions coerce him into a change, of course. But I would still argue that even if we're not sure that this will cause have a coercion effect, there is importance in uh, exacting or applying punishment for this kind of behavior. Again, this is 21st century Europe. Uh, the desire of a large country to invade another country because it disagrees with its policy choices, that should be unacceptable. And there should be painful consequences for that kind of behavior.
1: Here in the Bill Press Pod, we're talking all things Ukraine uh, today. With Joe Siernicioni, former president of the Plowshares Fund, and Stephen Pfeiffer, who was America's ambassador to Ukraine from 1998 through 2000 under President Bill Clinton. Uh, president Putin has upped the ante in the last day by putting Russia's nuclear capacity on what he called high alert. What does that mean? We'll jump right into that with Joe and Steve when we come back here on the Bill Press Pod. You know, one thing that this uh, Ukraine war has reminded us of, and that is how serious the threat of nuclear weapons still is to this planet, but also how important it is to have organizations that are working every day to free the world of nuclear weapons. And in my experience, no organization has been more effective than the Plowshares Fund, which was headed for many years by our guest, Joe Cirencioni. For over 40 years, the Plowshares Fund has been working with organizations around the globe to reduce and to eventually eliminate the dangers posed by nuclear weapons. So uh, in the interest of getting rid of nuclear weapons once and for all, uh, take time out to check out the Plowshares Fund at plowshares.org. Find out how you can help in this effort to free the world from the threat of nuclear weapons. Again, that's PloughShares, P-L-O-U-G-H, shares, plowshares.org. This show is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition. It's a group of over a hundred podcasts that have pledged to spread the word about the state of American democracy. We're partnering with the nonpartisan group Represent Us to promote efforts to protect the freedom to vote and to pass laws that'll make our government truly inclusive. America's democracy faces urgent threats, but there are ways we can build a fairer path forward together. Visit represent.us slash podcast to learn more. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe, now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
2: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana.
0: It doesn't get any better than this.
1: And we're back. Our guest, uh, Stephen Pfeiffer, who was America's ambassador to the Ukraine under President Bill Clinton. Uh, Joe Sirensioni, good friend of the program and a frequent guest and former president of the Plowshares Fund. Uh, Joe, what about this uh, word, uh, speech that uh, President Putin is saying that he feels so threatened by Ukraine that he has put Russia's nuclear capacity Mm. on high alert? What does that mean? Is he bluffing? Is this really dangerous? What's going on? A couple of things here. First,
2: we've heard these kinds of false claims before, but not by Putin, by by other leaders, uh, that a country was secretly developing nuclear weapons, and the threat was so urgent we had to take extraordinary action. We heard that was the justification for the war in Iraq. Some people believe it's a justification for going to war with Iran. It was false in all cases, and it's certainly false about. Ukraine. Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons. They are incapable of making nuclear weapons. This is part of Putin's disinformation campaign. But he he also, while he was saying the same thing, he also threatened nuclear use against um, against anyone who would op- oppose him, and he did it twice. And in the military exercises before the invasion, he also exercised seven different nuclear capable weapons. So for Putin he th- these things are all intertwined conventional cyber nuclear they're all part of a continuum of instruments that he can can bring to bear in the US we have a similar policy actually we call it integrated deterrence and the idea is supposed to strengthen deterrence by presenting this seamless con- continuum the risk is that when you get into a conflict it becomes easier to cross the lines and Putin is clearly signaling that he is ready to cross that line. I just want to say his his threat is, is – you. the only leader not named Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un who has made a, a similar kind of threat – you really have to go back to Richard Nixon in 1973 where he put U.S. nuclear forces on DEFCON 3 during his impeachment uh, troubles um, – Using the excuse of the uh, the nineteen seventy three Israeli Arab war, what Putin announced uh, on Sunday was that he was elevating the alert status of Russian nuclear forces. And let me explain what I think that means. Many have just interpreted this as a political move, which it certainly is. Try to back off the West, but it does have real world implications. It's it's a little unclear, but it appears that the Russian command and control structure is set up in normal times, not to be able to transmit a launch order. That, that it, it, The command and control communications network has a safety mechanism so that there's not a false or accidental launch order built in. What, what Putin did by raising the status to an elevated status is basically take the safety off the nuclear gun. He's now equipped the, the command and control process to be able to implement a, a launch order should he give it As far as I know, this is unprecedented. Russia has never gone to this status, certainly not since the 1970s, certainly not since the Russian Federation was formed in 1991.
1: And, Steve, there's nothing we can do about it, is there?
0: No, no. But I I would just say, uh, first of all, I think this is wholly irresponsible on uh, Putin's part. There was absolutely no threat to justify this. Uh, I mean, if you look at the United States and NATO, they have stated. Repeatedly that while they will assist Ukraine, that there will be no insertion of American or NATO forces into Ukraine to defend Ukraine. So, however this plays out, there is no, there is not going to be a threat to uh, Russia proper. So this is wholly irresponsible. Now, having said that, Putin has a habit of this. Uh, Putin really, unfortunately, talks quite loosely about nuclear weapons. I mean, he even made the claim in 2015 that um, during the Russian seizure of Crimea in 2014, that he was ready to put Russian nuclear forces on alert when, again, the Western reaction in military terms was zero. Now, I, I agree with, um, with Joe. I think this is first and foremost intended for a political impact to try to affect Western resolve and make people nervous. And I have to say that I think the Biden administration uh, has handled it just about right. You're not seeing an American declaration that well we're going to DEFCON 3 uh, they sort of ignored it, and that mm. may be the best way to play it for now.
2: Yeah, I, you know, to paraphrase uh, Michelle Obama, I think
1: when they
2: <laughs> when they go nuclear, we go diplomatic, yeah. and that's what that's what Biden has done here. He's not responding in kind. So you know, even though some are arguing that he should, he's not threatening making nuclear threats against Russia, saying, if you do that, you will face dire consequences. No, no, no. It's all very quiet. It's, it's pushing the diplomacy. I think there are a couple of steps we can do, uh, however, on this that could reduce the risk. Uh, t- two of them were mentioned by my our colleague, John Wolfstone, in a great article in Barron's on Monday. And the first is that Biden and uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, should communicate directly to their counterparts Putin and the Russian chief of, of defense that the United States and NATO will continue to provide military assistance to Ukraine, but they have no need or any attention to rely on nuclear capabilities as long as the conflict is limited to conventional weapons. And to go even further, that even should um, this the next step they should take, that they should declare that the US and NATO will not use a nuclear weapon first and will not use a nuclear weapon, even if, if if Putin does, because we have massive conventional capabilities that could be brought to bear. And so we should take the high ground here and try to establish the norm that no one should use a nuclear weapon first. Start to ingrain that into the norms of international behavior.
1: Do we know that the United States has not already done that? Uh, We don't know. Uh, Steve, how about a no-fly zone? That is that a step that we could take uh, or engage in? President Zelensky of Ukraine has requested it. Some other people have talked about it, but that does put the U.S. military in the play, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, no. I, I, I and I can understand the Ukrainian request, and there are some in the West who advocate that. But to my mind, no-fly zone would cross the line that President Biden and NATO is at. I mean, bear in mind, if you are going to establish a no-fly zone, you have to tell American and NATO pilots you have to be ready to have them shoot down Russian airplanes. Moreover, given the array of air defenses, including in Belarus, uh, you know, a U.S. plan for a no-fly zone would likely include taking those out. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to attack and strike air defenses in Belarus, Crimea, and Russia, Mm -hmm. I mean. If you're going to do a no-fly zone, you have to be prepared for a full-up shooting war with Russia, and I don't think NATO is going there. And I think actually it is very – while NATO is taking steps, which I think thus far are prudent in terms of reinforcing the eastern flank, I assume that NATO is trying to do it in a way that is also signaling the Russians that these are defensive deployments – and that again you know nato does not plan to involve itself in terms of nato forces fighting for ukraine yeah although nato will continue to provide arms and political support and other kinds of support to ukraine
2: yeah uh, i'm i'm with uh, the the president on this you do not want to cross the line you do not want to see us forces sh- engage in a shooting war with the russian forces we have tried very hard Uh, For decades, to avoid exactly that situation, you you don't want to do it here.
0: Yeah, and I would actually add too is I I think, uh, and this will sound counterintuitive, but I think NATO involvement in terms of NATO forces fighting in for Ukraine could also worsen the conflict for Ukraine, because Mm -hmm. at this point, uh, there there is, I think, some chance, not a large chance, that Putin may conclude that he did miscalculate it's time to leave. I think there's a small chance of that, and then withdraw. And we want to find a way to encourage that. Yes. If he finds himself fighting not only Ukrainian forces, but NATO forces, in his mind, this is going to confirm all of his paranoid fictions about NATO and the West being out to get him, and that conflict then becomes existential. You know, And that's a recipe for a, an all-out European war uh, between the United States, NATO, and Russia, And at the end of the day, it involves a war that I think becomes much harder on Ukraine.
1: Right. Yeah. uh, I want to go back for a second to something, uh, Ambassador, that you mentioned early on. To a certain sense, this is now an academic uh, exercise, uh, but it has been raised, uh, and that is the issue of NATO expansion. Um, Looking at where we are today with NATO at 30 countries and where it was at the end of the Cold War, And were people like George Kennan and Bill Perry uh, and Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan arguing that, okay, it's time, just NATO's done its job, it's done its business, let's just drop it and move on. Instead, we went through the NATO expansion route. Looking back, not that this justifies what Putin's doing now, but looking back, was that a mistake, Ambassador? Um,
0: I don't think so. And in part because I believe a lot of what Russia is doing in its foreign policy, including vis-a-vis Ukraine, is driven by domestic policy concerns. So whatever geopolitical concerns they have about Ukraine, I think as important are the domestic driver of this in Russia. And that is the kind of Ukraine that was developing a westward-oriented, democratic, They yet to have checked the box on economically successful. But if you get a Western-oriented, democratic, economically successful Ukraine, that's a nightmare for the Kremlin, because that's going to cause Russians to say, why can't we have the same political voice? Why can't we have the same uh, democratic rules that they have in Ukraine? And for the Kremlin right now, job number one is regime survival. So I think that's a problem. I guess the second point I would make is, could you imagine now had NATO not enlarged, and Russia and Ukraine found themselves in the conflict, the panic that you'd be seeing in the Baltic states and Poland and, and perhaps the uh, unwise actions that they would be taking. So uh, I, I do think that uh, I can understand the arguments of those who think that enlargement was a mistake. But I think at the end of the day, enlargement was justified. And again, I'm going to say this consciousness is not really about NATO enlargement. You know, to the extent the Russians say, well, NATO expanded to our borders, There are now five NATO members that border on Russian territory or the exclave of Kaliningrad. The last one of those five members, actually the last three of those five members to join the alliance, joined in 2004. So why is this crisis waited 18 years? Mm -hmm. Moreover, the Russians knew, they knew, that there was no enthusiasm in NATO for putting Ukraine on a membership track. Uh, In large part because the Russians have forces in Crimea, they have forces occupied in part of Donbass, and now they're elsewhere in, in Ukraine. But even before this conflict broke out, the question I think among many NATO allies was if we bring in Ukraine because Crimea is occupied because their Russian forces and occupied Donbass, does that mean the next day we go to war under Article 5 against Russia? And the Russians understood all of this. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, I tend to discount the NATO argument as having uh, so I mean certainly this is much more about Ukraine and Moscow's fear of losing Ukraine than it is about NATO and I would note, Uh, for their concern about losing Ukraine, nothing has done more in the past eight years to push Ukraine away from Russia and towards the West and toward institutions such as NATO than what the Russians have been doing to Ukraine since the seizure of Crimea and the conflict in Donbass, which had claimed 14,000 lives as of last week.
1: Right. Uh, Joe, but what we see is an open door, right? NATO's open door. Putin obviously sees as a direct challenge.
2: Oh, absolutely! I, I, Steve, and I disagree on this. Uh, I was against NATO enlargement when it was happening. I uh-huh. thought it, we were taking advantage of a, a weakened Russia, and I understand we did made all kinds of steps to try to reassure Russia. But the way the Russians heard that um, from my discussions at the time was, you know, don't worry, S- sit in your room. We're going to take care of you. Everything's going to be okay. And and meanwhile, their economy was being restructured. A, encouraged by the United States to uh, sell all the state assets to the people who then became the oligarchs. I think when this is all over, we have to go back and take a real look at our policies over the last 20 to 30 years to try to judge, you know what what went wrong here? How did this we let this situation develop? Could we have done things differently with Russia, with NATO, with the European Union, and on nuclear weapons? I mean, how is it? that 30 years after the end of the Cold War, Russia still has 6,000 nuclear weapons. Why didn't we move more quickly to reduce Russia's stockpile and our stockpile to remove nuclear weapons from security uh, uh, strategies uh, in the West and globally? Why didn't we pay more attention when people like Henry Kissinger, Sam Nunn, Bill Perry, George Schultz were telling us back in 2007 that unless we moved more to eliminate these weapons step by step, we were going to enter a world that had more nuclear risks, that was more psychologically disorienting, that was more uh, economically um, destabilizing. Well, we are in that world now. That's where we are. But because we didn't take care of business when we had the chance, if we get out of this conflict in one piece, I hope we won't blow it when we have the opportunity uh, to do it again.
1: So uh, I want to close by asking each of you uh, to give your assessment of how well the Biden administration has handled this or is handling this crisis. This is a Joe Biden's second big foreign policy test, I guess, after the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, He's been accused by some Democrats and a lot of Republicans of not moving fast enough, not not moving far enough. Um, Ambassador, start with you. Um, How's he handled it?
0: Yeah, I actually think the Biden administration has done quite a good job in the B plus A minus range in managing this crisis. I mean, Going back to the first conversations that took place between about this crisis that took place between President Biden and President Putin back in early December, they laid out a framework and they said there are two ways to go. Uh, One is, you know, we we are making clear to the Russians that should they use military force again against Ukraine, there will be significant costs, economic sanctions and other sanctions, which the Russians are finding about this morning or on Monday. Uh, There will be more armed supplies going to Ukraine, and NATO will, of necessity, beef up its military presence on its eastern flank. And they laid all of these out almost three months ago. They said the other route is diplomacy to try to address legitimate Russian concerns, and we're prepared to have that conversation. We're prepared to talk about broader European security issues. So I laid the framework out, but the framework really was it depended on the Russian choice. Now, I'd give them a couple of, uh, and at the end of the day, of course, I think the Russians were not interested in diplomacy. Uh, uh, If you go back to, I guess it was Sunday, uh, February 20th, the administration was saying that they were prepared even for a Biden-Putin summit, perhaps. Secretary Blinken was going to meet with Foreign Minister Lavrov on February 24. After they saw the speech that Putin gave on the 21st, which was not just a justification for recognition of these two breakaway so-called People's Republics, it was basically his justification for the war that was then launched on Thursday, they concluded correctly that there was really at this point not much reason to talk to somebody like Lavrov because the Russians were not interested in diplomacy. Now, I would also give the administration marks, positive marks on two other things. Is one, uh, they've really managed, I think, the coordination consultation aspect with the Allies very, very well. I mean, I think Biden is on the phone with the Quint or the Quad, or with NATO got several times a week. You know, There's dozens of phone calls going on, and they've been able to coordinate a united response that I think probably has surprised the Russians. The other thing I would give them high marks on, and this is always a tricky question, but they made a choice to declassify some intelligence. And if you go back and look at what they've been saying over the last two and a half months— and they were accused of sort of saying, well, you're giving the worst case. No, you're really calling this wrong. Over the last two and a half months, they've pretty much called each step that the Russians made. And I think they've used that not only to warn people, uh, to, I think, get people to prepare for a worst case, you know, but they also were able to do things like basically discount any possibility for the Russians to come up with some crazy pretext for attacking Ukraine. So I think they deserve good marks.
2: I actually would give them an a plus i I can't I don't know what they would great inflation. do better. great inflation <laughs> spoken like a Stanford professor <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I I don't know what they could have done done better here, and uh, preserving the NATO unity is just outstanding. They' certainly learned their lessons from what happened in afghanistan the The use of intelligence to sort of. Both let the world know what was going on, and to let Putin know that we are deep inside your operations. You know that very closed group. I wouldn't be surprised if one of those people was talking to intelligence sources in the United States because we 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 revealed the order to invade. I mean, that is quite inside baseball here, and, and we talked about that, and uh, and also I I got to say the way that. That Biden really has emerged as the leader of the West here, even as the West is changing before our eyes with a much more assertive European Union, with a much more um, united European leadership uh, emerging here. I, um, I think this might be Biden's uh, finest hour and, and could be the moment that is defining his presidency.
1: I have to add too I would give them high marks for keeping the American people informed every step of the way of what we're doing and why uh, which I, I, yeah. I which let's face it not every administration has done
2: and finally by preserving the diplomatic path I can't tell you how important this is we cannot go into this thinking that how satisfying as it may be that we're going to crush Putin or we're going to defeat Putin, or even kill Putin. You have to keep a diplomatic off-ramp open to allow him to save face and back down from this before thousands or tens of thousands of innocent people are killed in this war.
0: Exactly. And I think there's actually the White House is ready to do that. You know, if there were some indication from the Russians that, that they were, in fact, looking for a way out, you know, you could dress up the things. I mean, the negotiations that have been offered. Yeah. And I think would would be on offer. And we know how to do these things. We yeah. did them in the Cold War. We did them in the 90s. But you could dress it up in a way that I think would allow Putin to save some face. But that's not going to happen until Putin gives an indication that he, in fact, wants a diplomatic off-ramp.
1: Well, we're not at the end yet. We'll be watching it very closely. Uh, but we know and understand a lot more about it, thanks to the two of you. Ambassador Pfeiffer, thank you so much for your great service, for decades of service uh, to our country. Uh, And for joining us today and Joe Siracione, all the years that you've spent on this mission to uh, not only reduce the number of nuclear weapons, but to get rid of them, eliminate them from the face of the earth. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Joe. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast with Ambassador Steve Peiffer and Joe Siracione on the war in Ukraine. Uh, As that war continues, we'll keep watching it uh, this week. We'll also take a look at President Biden's State of the Union, as well as uh, Ketanji Brown, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, as she makes her uh, first rounds of the U.S. Senate, lining up support for her nomination to the Supreme Court. And we'll talk about all of that with three of top Washington's top political reporters this Friday on our Reporters' Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod should be a lively roundtable. In the meantime, have a good week. Take care of yourselves. Stay strong, stay safe, and come back and see us on the roundtable for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator